If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your holster is way more important than you think it is. It's just way more important than you think it is. Look, and I get that. The holster's not the sexy part of carrying firearms, right? You want to talk about your weapon and your ammunition. You want to talk about your safety training. You want to talk about how you did at the range. Oh, look at my groups. I was doing these failure drills today. And all that stuff's really important. I mean, really, really important. I'm not discounting that. But I've known so many people who do all those things. They take all the necessary steps. And then they carry with a holster they bought from a big box hunting store that was made a thousand at a time. Please, don't put your life in one of those holsters. You need to trust Northwest Retention Systems because it's all custom-made gear. It's the only thing I carry around. NWRetention.com. That's NWRetention.com. Use the promo code JESSE. Get you 10% off. This is The Jesse Kelly Show. Is it Thursday? There is no time anymore. Time and space are all lost, Chris. <laughs> it is weird, right? I mean, I even get to come to the studio and do the show. So I'm not stuck in the house like the wife, like most of you. And still, I asked her last night, I'm like, Was it, is it Tuesday? She said, I'm actually not sure. <laughs> oh, gosh. These are... 
Wild times, man. Wild times. All right. What is a legacy? What is it that you leave behind? Is it the totality of your life? Is it the high points of your life? Is it the low points of your life? Let me tell you a little story. December 5th, 1839. America, Ohio. A little child was born. A boy. Born into a working class family. uh, Wealthy by no means. (laughs) And I mean... By no means wealthy. And was taught about toughness at a very, very early age. Father was all about it. Father was a blacksmith. You will be tough. Life is hard. And this boy decided he was going to make something of himself. He was going to be something. He was going to be somebody. Then he worked his way. Through life, used to carry coal around for with his brother. And in case you're not aware, working with coal, work any kind of mining work, working with coal, even if you're one of the old people who used to shovel coal onto steamers, boats, or trains, it is hot, brutal, back-breaking work. This is not a lazy individual from a very early age. And gets into West Point. Gets into freaking West Point to serve his country. Well, he was a bit of a rebel at West Point. There were 34 people in his graduating class. He was number 34. One person later said that it was all right whether he knew his lesson or not. He simply didn't allow it to trouble him. <laughs> Apparently, he had the way of thinking that some of you may have. Not saying it's right, not saying it's wrong. It's probably not ideal as far as your mother would be concerned, but it's reality of life. They say he had the idea that, look, nobody remembers the people in the middle. If I can't be the head of the class, which I certainly cannot be, I might as well be the bottom of it. And how it worked then and how it works today when it comes to the military academies is this. They're always looking for top-of-the-class guy. And top-of-the-class guy gets the choice cherry assignments where they put the next generation of upcoming leaders who will who will carry America's military future. That's where you want the 4.0 guy, captain of the football team. This is America's warrior. Bottom of the class guy, even though even bottom of your class is pretty impressive if you actually graduate from a military academy. They're very, very, very rigorous. Bottom of the class guy, he guards a radio tower in Alaska. He just does. Now, that's obviously... An exaggeration, but probably not much of one. They assume that guy is a dirtball. They don't want this guy to go anywhere 
They don't think he'll go anywhere. Maybe he'll prove us wrong. Just, just put him up by the radio tower, please. And that's what they did with Custer. Just go go hide somewhere. Only the Civil War breaks out. And now we need every man on the battlefield. And Custer turns into a beast. And isn't all this that I'm describing to you, shouldn't it all be Custer's legacy? We'll get to that in a second. So he rides out into the middle of a river. Why does he do this? Because there's a general sitting there. And the general, it was, it was <laughs> it's actually General Bernard. They're looking around. He's under General Bernard, and he's looking around. And he's looking at this river and this general's hand wringing. And this is, you'll see this so much in the military. He doesn't know, wow, man, I can't, what should we, should we do here? I'm not sure a way around. And the general actually says, I wish I knew how deep the river was. <laughs> and Custer, because it's Custer, and that's part of how you finish last in your class, but it's part of how you do other great things too, takes off on his horse and rides out into the middle of the river and turns around and says, that's how deep it is, Mr. General. Kind of awesome. Also, probably not going to get you promoted. And it wouldn't get you promoted, except Custer was a beast. Custer was... Bold would be the understatement of the century. He was obviously a cavalry commander, and the guy would, he would lead charges that were bordering on suicidal, and he would lead them. I can't stress that point enough, and if I can take just a brief side note here, that means everything to guys in the military. If you lead from the front. There is nothing worse, and you figure out these people in about five seconds, than your new commander, your new platoon sergeant, whatever it may be, who hides in the rear with the gear when you have to go do dangerous stuff. And you know what? You don't care at all for that guy. However, when you have one who is the first through the door, you would lay down and die for that guy. I can't put into words how strongly that feeling, how strong that feeling is of loyalty to a commander who leads from the front. You will accept, and this sounds crazy, I understand that, you will accept borderline suicidal orders from your commander if he's going to be standing right there beside you. You just will. There's a human psychology to this to where you don't you won't throw yourself into it where someone else is just saying, screw you, go on. If he's there with you, all right, let's go die together, sir. Let's do it. And I won't break down each and every individual battle, but there were times where Custer would set up an ambush and he needed bait. And this bait was going to be in serious, serious peril of not waking up again the next day to bait the rebels into it. Custer didn't look at the 18-year-old private and say, go get him. 
Custer got on his horse and said, I got it. Almost died multiple times. Horse shot out from under him. His men rally and have to pick him up before a rebel guy. And one incident, Custer's horse is shot out from under him and a rebel's about to shoot him. And another one of Custer's guys come up and kill the rebel right before he kills Custer. His guys loved him. The dude was suicidally brave and led from the front. He would jump up in the middle of battle, and this is an exact quote, come on, boys, I'll lead you this, this time, and he'll just charge right into the enemy line. Dude was born to fight. Is that his legacy? Hang on. Custer digs his way out from a hard scrabble beginning. West Point, war hero. Finally, the Civil War ends. By the way, did you know that Custer was at the Appomattox Courthouse where Lee signed the surrender to Grant? One of the most famous events in U.S. history, and Custer was there. Didn't know that, did you? Second lieutenant, first lieutenant, captain. Major, the guy was a beast, leaves the army because the Civil War ends, thinks about running for Congress, messes around with a couple things, and finally they're having an Indian problem, and I'm skipping over a lot. They're having an Indian problem out west, having trouble getting things reined in, having trouble learning how to fight these Indians. These Indians won't stand and fight, which let's just, let's take a quick break here for a moment. Indians had to fight that way. Now, they love every big army in the history of mankind, every gigantic, powerful army that has its opponent outmanned and outgunned, whines about how the other army won't stand and fight with them. Every army. We've done it. Everybody's done it. The British did it against us in the American Revolution. They won't even stand and fight. Uh, Yeah. I'm not going to commit suicide. Indians were not going to line up like we lined up and charge in when they didn't have the men, the bullets, the food, anything else to replace the ones they lost. Every lost warrior was precious to them. So, of course, they didn't stand and fight. They're going to raid as many things as they can, hit you, and then leave. Indians, with the exception of the story we're about to, to approach in a very few other times, never really fought in mass. You do enough reading on the Indian Wars and the various fights between the Indians and and us. I mean, they were small. How many times have I talked to you already about ancient battles or even World War II or Napoleon, whatever it may be, and we're talking 10,000. There are 40,000 here lined up against 50,000. You never see numbers, even a fraction of that, against the Indians. And as a result, the army was frustrated, especially because an army is, well, an army isn't that light on its feet. It's not like a private company. Armies, as the old saying goes, this is not my my saying, 
they tend to always be equipped to fight the last war instead of the next war. We saw this World War One. Saw this in World War Two. Gonna see it in the next one. How many times have we talked about China? I don't, I don't, I'll break this down a little later on in the show, but how we're actually not in any way equipped to go after China militarily. I'll explain it in a little while. I, I digress. Either way, they can't get a hold of these daggone Indians. They're raiding supply lines. They're going after trains. They're killing settlers. They're doing these other things. We can't fight them. They won't stand and fight. We need somebody brave. We need somebody unorthodox. Who'd they call? Custer. They formed a little regiment maybe you've heard of before called the 7th Cavalry Regiment. Custer was the lieutenant colonel. Oh, I forgot to mention, he loved his wife so much, he went AWOL just to go hang out with her for a while. And they welcomed him back because he was a beast. Now, we have this area in South Dakota called the Black Hills. They call it the Black Hills because of the way the sun reflects off it at a certain point. I'm not going to go into all that artsy stuff, Chris. We don't have time for that on this show. But this is, if you believe them, a sacred area for the Lakota, for the Sioux. Now, when I say if you believe them, I'm not trying to be insulting. These people all, I mean, it's the condition of mankind. That's why I never demonize the Indians. I never demonize America. It's just history is what it is. People are good and bad. But uh, individuals are both good and bad. I'm mostly bad, but you're probably a good, uh, you know, breakup of, of both. Indians were the same. There was a, we don't believe in land ownership. This is our sacred hunting grounds. Oh, shut up. They were killing each other all the time. And if they could, if they could wipe out an entire tribe that was in an area they loved, they would do it in a heartbeat. And so the Sioux, they pass on these things, of course, that every professor repeats breathlessly today. This was the area where they believed Earth began. The Sioux just got there. They just ran someone else out of the place. Let's dial that down a notch. Either way, the Sioux were an awesome, what is one of my favorite Indian tribes ever. As you can imagine, I'm an Indian tribe fan. I just, I find their history fascinating. Well, they'd run some people out of there, and now they kind of ran things in the Black Hills. Them and the Cheyenne, them and the Cheyenne were partners. And we basically had told them, oh, yeah, you know what? You can have the Black Hills, no problem. And, and then someone discovered gold in the Black Hills. And then we said, you know what? Oh, look, this is obviously your land, but we're going to just have a little expedition, an army expedition, just to kind of do a geographical study. And if we happen to find some gold there, we'll deal with that as the time comes. Long story short, yeah, we wanted them out of the Black Hills. That town, that wild town, Deadwood, You maybe you've seen the HBO series, the gold rush town that wasn't an official town. Yeah, it came because of this, because of the gold rush in the Black Hills. And as you may imagine, warrior, warrior-like people like the Sioux and Cheyenne did not take kindly to this. All the Indian names you would know, or at least a bunch of them, Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, they got together and said, no, no, it's time for war. 
Well, they did one of the things the Indian tribes could never really do and hadn't really done very many times. The Iroquois did it. Others did it. But they joined forces, which is what the Indians always should have done to have any prayer of success. Custer wasn't used to anybody joining forces. He was used to fighting a village of 100 warriors and 100 women. Not, I'm not impugning Custer's bravery, but that's what he was used to fighting. You got to try to find him in a village. What you need to do is find an Indian scout who will locate the village for you. Charge in, take them unaware, kill as many people as you can, capture some others. That's how Custer fought Indians. And he had done this repeatedly. And so Custer rides off. And the numbers are in dispute here, which is really weird to me because it's the army. So you would think a relatively modern army, you would have exact numbers. Why don't I know how many people Custer rode with? I don't know. You, you can read 10 different things than I have on the thing. And one person will tell you 500, another will tell you 700, another will tell you 900. Let's call it 600. I, I, is that right? I don't know. And the same with the Indian account, although you can understand why theirs, you wouldn't have exact numbers. But I'll get to their numbers in a minute. So Custer rides off and he's hunting for some Indians to go after. Gets word that there's a little Indian settlement, a large one. Custer, Custer, again, is told that there's a large one. He is not told how many. If you're George Custer and you've never seen more than one or 200 Indians in a place at a time, large means a couple hundred. Doesn't it? Not trying to just make excuses for the guy, but isn't that what it means? Only... There wasn't 100, and there wasn't 200, and it wasn't half women and children. Custer took his 7th Cavalry, and he rode down towards this village, and there were about 2,000 armed and angry Sioux and Cheyenne Braves waiting for him. Hang on. Jesse Kelly. They ride down towards this village and they're going to do well what Custer's done before remember it's a large encampment he is not told that there are two to three to four to five thousand again when I say the numbers are all over the place they're all over the place nobody knows there are thousands we know that he's not told there are thousands of experienced Lakota and Cheyenne warriors down there by the way, quick side note, if you remember that whole conversation we just had about 10 minutes ago about how I, I don't do this, you know, saints and demons thing when it comes to militaries and Indians and America and, and the army and all these other things. You know why? You know that we don't believe in land ownership. Do you know who led Custer down towards that encampment 
the Crow Indians. Do you know why the Crow Indians led Custer down to that encampment? Because it was their land and the Sioux just ran them off it. That's, that's, you don't like it. You don't have to like it, but that's the history of the world. It's the strong dominating the weak. We try to avoid that as much as possible, but let's stop being a child. Your anti-American trash college professor didn't tell you the truth. People are people. The Indians were just as wonderful and just as terrible as the Americans in every possible way. We just won. That's just all there is to it. I guess I shouldn't say Americans. They're as American as anybody else as the U.S. Army. Either way, I digress. They ride down, and this is where our story ends. Custer splits his forces, again, as he's done before. He essentially wants one one part of his army to ride through one side of the camp and the other part of his army to ride through the opposite side. He wants to have a big old Indian sandwich with them in the middle and his army's the bread. Only there are some studs like Crazy Horse, and there are a lot of them, and they beat the living crap out of Custer. The first people who get there are not Custer. He, I believe it was Reno, sets up a skirmish line. And the skirmish line is this, essentially. These guys are all mounted. This is a cavalry unit. They're all mounted. They get off their horses. Every fourth man holds the reins on the other horses. You don't fight on horseback unless you're charging through with a saber. You, if you're setting up a skirmish line, you don't fight on horseback. And they would line up in a line. It's just, look, it's not more complicated than it sounds. And they start firing away. And the Indians are firing back. And there are a lot of them. And there are a lot of them. And they outflank the soldiers because again these are not these are not inexperienced warriors they're fighting these are the best of the best and the angriest of the angry indians that are left and they wipe out or at least cause a retreat of this first group so custer starts to charge through and custer doesn't get much further either and he's like oh crap and it ends up with custer up on essentially a bluff where he had to retreat to Soldiers throwing down their rifles in terror and running the other way. Soldiers shooting their own horses so they can lay down behind the horse as cover as they fight the Indians. The Indians sending rifle fire back. The Indians extremely experienced in this kind of warfare laying down and essentially making their arrows artillery rounds. They would lay down and they would shoot them, not straight up in the air, but at an extreme angle. So arrows would rain down on the soldiers who were, who were fighting. And Custer died. And pretty much all of his men died. And it was kind of a cool part of the story. The, Lakota were not torturers like a lot of the Indian tribes were, especially the Eastern Woodlands tribes. That's a that's something from the movies. The Apaches were big on torture. The Comanches were big on torture. That's, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas. The Northeast, big on torture. The Lakota were not. But they were big on mutilating corpses after death. They were big on that, which, 
they always do that as a tradition, as part of a terror thing, but I don't really care what you do to me after I die. So they went around the battlefield and they would slice off scalps and they would slice off your nether regions and do various other things too. And oftentimes it was the women who did it. They would send the women out to do this. And look, angry women, you just watched your husband get shot by a U.S. soldier. She's going to go out and as part of, you know, a little bit of venting session, they would mutilate. Then these soldiers were mutilated, except for Custer. Custer was not mutilated. Custer had a bullet wound in his chest and one in his temple. And it is said, and you never know how much of these legends are actually true or not, it is said he laid there with a little smirk on his face. Now, that is a very, very brief overview of the fascinating life of George Armstrong Custer. What did you know about Custer before I started talking about him? Obviously, I have a bunch of history freaks in my audience like I am, so I'm sure many knew more or know more than even I just said, but 80, 90% of you, you knew about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Did you know he was a Civil War legend? Did you know about West Point? Did you know about how much he loved his wife? Did you know about his hard scrabble beginnings? No, you didn't. And why don't you? Because the truth is this. Your legacy can be many things to you. It can be many things to your, li- to your loved ones, your wife, husband, kids. It only takes one big mistake, and that's your legacy. In the minds of the population, it only takes one big mistake to wipe out everything good you've ever done. You're going to hate this, what I have to say next. Here's Donald Trump last night talking about Governor Kemp opening up Georgia. Some of the governors have done a fantastic job working with us. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are, they're great. They've been Strong, resolute. I disagree but strongly at the same time, with the governor of Georgia. I have heard through your emails, you're welcome to email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. I've heard on social media. I've heard in emails. I've heard so many things from people who love Donald Trump a lot. And support him a lot. And let me just go ahead and clarify. I voted for him. I am still, no matter what, going to enthusiastically vote for him again. He's been one of the best presidents of my lifetime. Conservative judges slapping around the media. A booming economy. This is Donald Trump's economy, too. You can send me all the emails you want how... These lockdowns and 30 million unemployed is some 
deep state leftist plot. No, it's not. Donald Trump has supported and still supports these. And if Donald Trump gets bounced out of office in November with 20 or 30 million unemployed Americans, I don't care about the judges. That's going to be his legacy. Jesse Kelly. You know, your house smells. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. My house smells too. I'm not, I'm not indicting you. I'm sure you keep a clean home, but just time means you're going to acquire smells, whether those are cooking smells that get in your paint, your carpet. Maybe they're animal smells. Maybe you're a smoker or someone else was. Just living creates smells. I didn't realize that my home had a smell to it until I got my first Eden Pure Thunderstorm, the greatest air purifier I've ever, ever owned in my life. This thing, I had it plugged in for two hours. I came back in the room and my air smelled so clean. I now own three of them. I'm not making that up. This thing has absolutely changed me on top of what it's done for my allergies. Go get one, get two, be like me and get three. Go to EdenPureDeals.com. Make sure you use the promo code JESSE that gets you 10 bucks off and free shipping. EdenPureDeals.com, promo code JESSE. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.